Hello and welcome back to Financial Gain, the estate planning podcast. This is the show where we explore some of the biggest topics in financial planning for people and advisors throughout the UK. So previously on the podcast, we've talked about using the AIM market as part of later life planning, but this isn't the only uh, strategy that could be suitable for clients and advisors looking to uh, shelter capital from inheritance tax, and in particular using business relief or business property relief. One of the areas where we spend a great deal of time looking at is looking into tangible assets, real assets that are capable of generating value, but also offer a range of societal benefits. In previous conversations, we've explored the benefits of putting a private trading company structure around these opportunities. But today we're going to talk about the sector specifically, what asset-backed investing means for us here at Stella and how it can be of advantage to you and your clients. So joining me today to run through this area is my colleague David Stein, who's an investment manager here at Stella. Hello David, thanks for joining me today. and. Uh, we're going to get stuck into some of the principles that uh, that are applied from our asset perspective. Do you want to just summarise uh, the three sort of principles that, that, that we work to on the asset back side? Hi, Jonathan. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we look essentially from, from start to finish. So the first principle is to buy well on behalf of our investors. And what we try and do uh, from that perspective is to purchase assets at good value. Uh, we have history of securing these assets off market and what that often enables us to do is secure the assets at below open market value so in order to to, to buy well we are we need to um, leverage the experience and the, and the network that we have in the industries in which we operate to source deals um, and to secure these deals at a value that we see opportunity to then create value for investors uh, which is the second principle, i.e. managing the assets well post-acquisition. And that then flows through to when we come to sell assets and we seek to sell the assets on the market, um, having ideally, no, not ideally, having added value throughout the course of our ownership. So the three fundamental principles are to buy well, to manage well, um, and to sell well on behalf of our investors. Good, thank you. And some may say, you know, Quite, quite flippantly, that's that's easy to say, but how does that sort of come alive in, in, in practice? And you've kind of touched on there the acquisition side in terms of looking to acquire off-market. Do you want to just talk about, you know, how that works in practice, where where the sources of the deals come from and, and you know, how that how that get, gets, gets put together? Because finding these things, finding real assets, you know, can obviously be done relatively straightforward by using agents and brokers uh, and people that have got have got their ear to the ground. But in those situations, you might end up in, you know, a competitive bidding situation. So here we're looking for an alternative to that, aren't we? Yeah. So it, it does come with um, experience and relationships so across the sectors in which we operate. We have a track record of buying um buying assets and managing managing them, essentially executing transactions um, as we intend to do at outset. So 
reputationally therefore when people are coming to sell of these assets there are a smaller select group of parties that they know are capable of executing the transaction uh, and they know that they'll be able to do so with speed efficiency um, and professionalism and therefore that brings thankfully that brings us to the fore as a strong option for them um, and that gives us the opportunity there's also some instances whereby people would seek to um, sell of assets privately and therefore not um, via an open bidding war example of that we, we previously um, previously purchased an asset whereby the seller was a publicly exposed person and therefore wanted to be discreet and it's in those instances that they're seeking to um, sell off the market so we are very well placed to be able to capitalize on those opportunities and as you say those relationships they come from a blend of uh, ex- our existing network with the partners in which we operate um, which we we work with in these sectors but also from a brokers and agents perspective that you mentioned um, often those brokers and agents will be managing sale processes off market as well as on market so they won't necessarily be advertising on market for everyone but they may approach a select group of potential buyers um, in which our name would be in that hat yeah no they're, they're they're all very good points and i think you know added to that you know being in this market for 30 30 years now it's that it's that reputation so you know those those people that are arranging deals if they know that people are going to going to complete going to follow through and what they say and what they do that carries an awful lot of an awful lot of weight so timeliness is important isn't it and and as you say removing execution risk from the vendor is is something that holds us in good stead no agreed agreed then you know managing well i mean that that covers a multitude of sins doesn't it when we talk about how 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 do we manage well that that kind of does depend on the the, the, the sectors in which we operate doesn't it really there's a there's a multitude of things that cover good management and i try and summarize it by you know rolling up your sleeves and getting stuck into to all the detail you don't know which levers or which buttons or which pedals you can push in all these different businesses that neatly encapsulate everything everything that, that ourselves and the management teams do on a day-to-day basis yeah, it's a very nicely uh, broad spectrum of managing managing well, but I suppose it's, it's at outset understanding what the intention is. So having a clear, structured business plan, if you like, for each of these these businesses, how are we seeking to take them on that journey of, of value creation? And then, as you say, it's the active element to it. So we're in those businesses on a day to day basis. We're managing um, risk on a day to day basis. You can have a business plan at outset, but often things do um, pop up and, and, and circumstances can change. Uh, so it's being adaptive, flexible and um, robust in terms of managing those risks and seeing the business plan through to execution. Yeah, good. And then selling well. I mean, I think a, 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 you know, a big part of our, of our job is... is to realise capital for investors is all very well, and we've touched on this before. You know, watching values increase and not doing anything about it, in, and and taking the opportunity to to crystallise value for everybody is that is that something you subscribe to? Yeah, I think it it relates to the point that I've just said in terms of you can have the 
you know you have a plan in place when you when you're acquiring the asset so at stage one you kind of see what you're what you're intended to do you're intended to buy at this value you expect to have a, have a holding period of x uh, upon which you'll be reviewing its marketability and seeking to dispose but within that framework there is a need to be flexible and a need to to react in some ways to, to opportunity when it does arrive so there can be and there often are instances where if we see an opportunity to crystallize crystallize strong returns for investors ahead of time we will take those opportunities so it's it's again that active um active approach in taking the opportunities when 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 we see um when we see them come to the fore yeah because a lot of a lot of people are long long term holders some people view br as as you know somebody that's got to you know clearly maintain value but actually how do you demonstrate uh, you know, activity and, 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 and disposing of them and looking at new investment opportunities and recycling that capital is a key part of it because, you know, we're probably going to touch on some of the, uh, you know, some of the sectors, but they're all, they're all cyclical in their own nature and their own shape and form. They operate in, 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 in different business cycles. There's not one cycle that can be attributed to the sectors in which we operate, but there are going to be times when, in our view, you know, some of these projects have, have, have got to the top of the cycle and, you know, that's the time to, to, to capitalise and move on and then look for those other opportunities that are at a different point in their cycle to, to continue to generate value. Completely completely agree. And that we will come on to it, as you say, but that is one of the key benefits of diversification and the ability to be flexible across these different sectors is that we can commit capital to investors that we see opportunity uh, being there to create that value and we can also um, crystallize that value if not at the top then at a point in which we see that we've managed to generate those returns for investors we can crystallize that get that capital back in and redeploy it to places that we see there being new opportunity um, to, to effectively repeat that process so yeah it's a real being Diverse gives you that flexibility to be nimble, to be fleet of foot, um, and to really be able to focus on where we do see those opportunities as opposed to being restricted um, and bound or, or committed or married to certain industries. Yeah, yeah. Now we've touched on diversification quite quite a few times in 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 under those three principles and diversification to us potentially means something different than it does than it does to others a lot of comments that we get back around diversification is is you know at project level and where and where we are, you know others might be doing you know 50 i don't know lending projects means that there's diversification because there's a considerable number of projects on the go but within a within a similar sector Whereas we look at diversification slightly differently, don't we? We do, yeah. So there's a we, we take a multifaceted approach or, or view to diversification. So we've got the the headline diversification of sectors. So the businesses that we operate in, the, the sectors that we operate across, we've got bit different businesses within those sectors, and they are all by nature the fact that they're in different industries, uncorrelated, some more so than others, and they do different things at different times. We then have um, a diversified uh, investment features or investment strategies if you like so we have some businesses and they, there may be two businesses for instance within the same sector 
that we're expecting to, to fundamentally do different things because of the natures of that specific business. So an example of that would be, for instance, if we're operating within the hotel sector, we can have some hotels in which we, um, they may be branded hotels, hotels in which we purchase them with a franchise agreement and we're expecting them to effectively be um, you know, cash generative from day one, to be income producing from day one. Um, but then we may also have independent hotels within the portfolio that we purchase as more of a um, as more of a value add pro yeah. project. So we yeah. may purchase them; they've been underperforming, but there's value there to to improve those businesses, and we can make serious changes to those businesses. Whereas with the more branded hotels, you are limited to an extent in in, in, in the changes that you can make. So it's that multifaceted approach to diversification where we're diversified across different sectors the businesses within those sectors all have different features and different business plans and then also the return profiles of of the different businesses within our portfolio some may be as, as i mentioned sort of income leaning towards generating income and some may be growth opportunities in which you're seeking to appreciate that asset but you're not expecting to, to generate an, a, a return in the near term and then there can be a blend of both where assets are throwing off you know an, in an income, if you like, as well as capital growth, as well. Yeah, that's a very that's a very neat way of explaining this. There's a real, you know, powerful uh, diversification mes message there. We all know that diversification is a is the number one risk mitigation tool. Any investment manager or asset manager has got at their disposal. But we've heard there about not only about sector diversification. Uh, across these tangible asset classes, but we've heard about, you know, return diversification. We've heard about, you know, strategic diversification as well. And so, therefore, you know, there's quite an opportunity here to, to understand in a bit more detail how how these things are pulled together. But presumably, David, they've all got one overarching goal in mind within that web of diversification, and that's to generate a real return. Yeah, so it, it feeds back to that. Those core principles we touched on at the start is irrespective of, of what the businesses are doing, the aim is to purchase well, to manage well, and, and then to sell well. And that is the fundamental aim is, is to generate value for investors, absolutely. And is that therefore a blend of return, isn't it? I suppose one of the questions that, you know, particularly our front-facing staff are, 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 are talking about is, you know, how do these returns get generated? But as you say, some of these, some of these are income producing, so there's return in effect day after day. Others are more capital growth orientated, where, you know, the return is not linear on a day by day, hour by hour basis, and some are on a, you know, a medium to long term, you know, holding period. Do you want to touch about those different holding periods and, and what that means for returns? Yep. Yeah, so we have so across the sectors. Um, that we operate and we have some that are more short-term by nature so we do um, short-term lending for instance where you'd expect um, you know we're, we're committing we're providing loans for anywhere between six months and 18 months two years so you know that that return is is going to be the cycle of, of capital is going to be coming back to you with a with return in the in the near term uh, we then have a number of businesses where we would be looking at sort of a medium term holding period so anywhere between three to five years um, those are the types of businesses that we you know, sort of 
asset-backed businesses. So we, we do hotels and care homes and uh, golf courses, for instance. And depending on what the strategy is there, they may be a shorter-term whole period, i.e. sort of three to four or five years. Or if we're looking at them as a value-add opportunity, they may extend to sort of between five and seven years. So we are flexible in terms of these holding periods, but we do have a framework, if you like. Uh, and then we have the, the longer-term um, opportunities. So commercial forestry is one that we're, that we're um, particularly active in that space. Um, and depending on what your strategy is there, it could be anywhere between you know, seven or ten years. Um, that we, have, we have, to be fair, sold asset forests ahead of those timelines. So I mentioned earlier around if we do see opportunity to crystallise value, mm. we will do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have done that in the past in the forestry um, space, and that's b- because the market has been in a, in a position that has enabled us to generate significantly above target returns for investors, and, and we uh, live by that principle of if there's value there and we think it's in the best interest to crystallise that value for investors and redeploy elsewhere, then we will do so. Uh, but as a sort of template, you would expect the forestry type assets to be longer term in yeah. nature. Yeah, got it. But I think, you know, for those, you know, listening today, when we talk about asset back, you know, the reason why we focus in, in, in this sector with a view to, um, you know, investing in businesses that will qualify for for, 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 for business relief is the fact that these are buildings, these are real assets. So at the end of the day, the value that's being generated from that asset, whether that's, as you say, a care home or you've got trees growing on that land or you've got a hotel built on that land, you've got a bricks and mortar valuation, which is obviously much different to to an aim share, which we've covered on, uh, on, on previous episodes of the podcast. You know, an aim company is obviously worth money. It's always going to be arguably worth money if it's a well-run, well-run business. But the market price of those company shares do not necessarily always reflect, you know, the fair value of the the business at hand, and therefore there's a degree of volatility associated with the market getting involved in the pricing of of, of things like AIM shares. But with a real asset, it's the fact that fundamentally there is bricks and mortar, there is land, which is in finite supply on our mighty beautiful island and it you know it, it's there as a store of value it's an underpin of 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 the opportunity in which we invest yes yeah, that is the key com- commonality if you like across so all of the variation that we've mentioned before uh, across all of the different sectors with all the different types of businesses the underlying commonality is that uh, these investments are underpinned by assets with high asset security so they are real buildings and businesses um, they are supported or secured by real assets, um, and therefore with that comes, uh, by definition, security because you have ownership of that physical, um, tangible asset. Yeah. So we would view, we would view that you know capital preservation here remains a core, a core focus within the sector. If, if you know nothing else was 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 to happen and nothing else was to move then that that underpinning of investors capital through through bricks and mortar or land is a is a real solid base in which to which to grow value yes absolutely yeah yeah good good and so yeah moving on from from you know that that those levels of asset security and it might be that 
you know, again, we kind of describe things as having more than one layer of security here. When you think about when you think about a hotel, for example, you've got the land in which it sits, which is worth something to somebody somewhere. If the hotel ceased to be there, the land would still be of value for an alternative use, whatever alternative use that may be. That could be residential housing or that could be another commercial operation. So the land has got value. So that's, in effect, asset number one that has value. And then you've got the building itself that, that obviously we're looking to invest in as a primary driver is that that building has got value and then it's got fixtures and fittings and the, and the, and the stuff inside it, which is also needed to, to create value. So you've kind of got many stores of... Of, of of asset security there haven't you so there's quite a you know I would say a complex web but it's not necessarily a complex web what we're trying to do is try to unpick and sort of debunk the fact that this is complicated this is just real businesses with real assets which have a store of value through through good times and less good times and we're looking to maximize the value that's being generated from from that land and buildings yes and that's where the um active management comes into play so you, you've provided principle one that has been met i.e. you've bought the asset well and you've got the opportunity therefore um, or to, to improve the asset that's where essentially we at Stella would come to um, we would come to seek to actively manage that asset in line with you know our, our proposed strategy or, or plan and that's where we seek to maximise the opportunity so we've got the store of value within the security in the land and the, and the building that we've touched on but then we've got the activity of the business and and typically we will be committing to businesses where we see an opportunity to take it from a to b and in order to do so there's often a number of um, different types of activity that we will seek to do in order to get it from from a to b so then along with those existing um, revenue streams and the the obviously ability for us to diversify those revenue streams there is also the option for us to seek to add value by um, developing upon the land that we have so we, we often have you know we purchase the land with an asset on it there's often opportunity on that land to do more more things to develop to expand or, or to seek alternative uses for, for parts of that land so there's, there's a range of different ways in which we can seek to post-purchase one actively manage the asset well and ensure that its core business function is is performing well and, and seek to get the maximum value we can out of that core business function but also to add layers on top of that that when we do come to sell it um, we've significantly transformed that business um, and that's where we see the if you like the the value that is um, added by being an active investment manager of, of real assets it's also quite nice to actually see them go on that that journey so from an investor's perspective in terms of reporting to our investors i know that they in particular do like seeing those stories of we've purchased this asset this is the plan um, and then over the course of the next three or five years often that plan can expand and develop um, to the point where we come um, to sell that asset and they would have seen that that physical asset go on a journey from where we started to where where we ended uh, and they can go and visit and, and actually see it for themselves mm. as well which is which is nice to have something tangible yeah, no, agreed. And it's that, and it's we touched on it. It's all those buttons, all those levers. When you think about these different businesses, you know, for for taking hotels uh, and, and and adding, you know, spa complexes or you know other leisure facilities for the hotel user, to you know in, 
improving staff accommodation so we can attract the best talent into into these types of businesses to care homes where you're you know you're refurbishing rooms to in, to you know incorporate better facilities that make that will make the make the residents more comfortable and you know keep keeping up with market trends as well so you know in all these businesses trying to enca- encapsulate what happens on a day-to-day basis from active management and driving revenue you know again is quite complex because there's there's not one size fits all and that i suppose is you know is one of the key things for us around the diversification point is that having that adaptability and that flexibility to not be you know focused in one particular direction and what i mean by that is that that what works at say one hotel doesn't always work at the next hotel and you've got to be live to you know the local market conditions um you know the 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 location of the asset uh the type of customer that it's trying to trying to ascertain you know where you talked earlier about you know a budget hotel versus a you know a luxury boutique hotel you know those two those two hotel guests are probably not the same there's a big distinguishing yep. two distinguishing pools of 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 potential uh clients to market to there so even within sectors there's lots of different opportunities and it's got to be targeted and and, and specific and helping the businesses achieve that is a core part of what we do isn't it yes yep yeah, good, good. And so, just m- moving us on nicely, we touched a bit there about you know levels of of asset security. So, how does that how does that flow into into returns to investors? How does the how do we generate value, and how do we work with 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 our partners to ensure best value for investors? So, we in terms of working working with our partners to ensure best value. So. First, first and foremost, I think one of the key points is that ensuring that all parties that are involved are on the same page and, and driven by the same goals. Um, so we work with specialists across each of the different sectors that we work in. That brings with us, or brings with it, um, a number of benefits. One is that they typically have the existing network resources and the ability to um, manage the day-to-day operational activity. Um, two is that the deal in which we will have with all of these partners will always be structured in a way that our investors are, are protected. So we have a priority return for our investors and we also typically will always will have um, the remuneration of our partners to be aligned with the performance of the underlying business. And therefore, all parties are involved, all parties are aligned in terms of trying to get the best um, performance operationally out of those businesses which ultimately benefits our investors but it also clearly benefits our partners uh, because that's the way in which those things are structured so that's as a key kind of risk mitigator in itself is that one our investors have effectively the first tranche of mm. of positive return ring fence for them um, but two is that the people that we're working with they have skin in the game they'll, they'll be invested in, in the project themselves and they'll be fully committed so that we know that everyone involved in in executing whichever plan we have for the business um, is fully committed to it. Yeah, so the so the priority return for investors is something that we've obviously long long believed in insofar as, you know, we want to do a golf, good do a good job, as you just say, from a acquisition and from a management perspective. But we've got to fundamentally recognise that this is, you know, other people's capital that that, that we're managing and therefore 
you know, the returns are as a result of that financial capital and and should flow to investors fairly from from the efforts of everybody to to, to, to manage that. So that priority return is is really, really important. And it doesn't mean that that we're taking extra risk in terms of offering operate offering that 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 priority return because as we've heard it's about generating you know operational and financial performance from an existing from an existing asset you know whatever over 80 percent of 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 our asset backed projects are ungeared so we're not we're only using investors capital to generate this these these returns so from a risk perspective you know the fundamental principle there is that there's no additional risk this is about you know, aligning interest, we are in effect paid to manage these assets and therefore, you know, we charge a management fee accordingly as opposed to lots of other fees for do- doing something else. So, you know, it's a fairly simplistic, uh, but at times in this in this world often uh, often overlooked or over, often overcomplicated, shall I say. Um, so that's really, really important that that opportunity to generate revenue and for investors to be confident that you know come what may whether that's you know returns at target or returns above target that you know that is ring fenced as you say and and, and, and available for investors that's really really important and probably something we haven't touched on um and and and, and, and explored is just a bit more detail about the role of our role of our specialist partners you know, and and to set the scene there. I mean, having been in you know this this tax efficient sector now for for over thirty years, you know, you kind of have a choice as to whether we you know have an in house uh, team in all of these different sectors or whether we whether we outsource. And for thirty years, I've seen the outsource model work efficiently and effectively because sort of two fundamental reasons. One. One, as we've touched on, these businesses have cycles, so there some cycles will come and some cycles will will go, and at weak moments in the cycle, we don't have, um, you know, in-house employees that are costing costing the firm capital, whereas there's no acquisitions or no availability of projects to to spend that capital. Number one, but two, it offers you know it offers us nimbleness and effectiveness in, in being able to get out into the market, explore new sectors, explore new opportunities, uh, and comes back right back to the sort of the buying well point of of the opportunity that affords us is that, you know, our door is not shut to, you know, the dozens and dozens of people that see us on a monthly basis looking looking for capital in different areas. So, you know, working with specialist partners is is really important. We've got a good in house management, investment management team, but you know, our fundamental job is there to manage manage the managers. Do you want to to add anything to that, David? Yeah, I think that that, that structure brings with it uh, almost an additional layer of of oversight and, and risk management because because the, as a, as we've touched on because the parties, i.e., the external specialist partners that we're working with and us, are aligned in terms of the end the end goal. Um, it gives you the level of oversight that they have over the day-to-day um, operations of the business an additional level of oversight being our investment team managing those partners and effectively managing those businesses businesses vicariously through the activity of those specialist partners um, and then the ultimate oversight that we have 
we being the investment committee at, at Stellar Asset Management, to make sure that we never lose sight of the fact that it fundamentally we, we are looking to achieve those three core principles at the very start on behalf of our investors. It's their capital that we're managing and have we hit all three? Are we? Have we purchased it well? Um, it wouldn't get through the investment committee. It wouldn't be approved at outset unless there was a consensus that we were purchase, purchasing well. Um, and then throughout the course of, of, of our ownership, are we managing it well? And ultimately, are we are we selling it at the, at the right time in order to get what we feel is the best result for investors at that time? Yeah, good. And we're leaving to all intents and purposes, we're leaving the experts to do, you know, to do the day job. You're empowering, you know, existing competent management teams and management professionals and and you know, those that have been operating these sectors for a long time. You're 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 more than giving them the benefit of the doubt. You're you continue to empower them to do uh, and execute that that business plan and that business strategy, isn't it? And you know, you're there, we're there to help to to nudge, to cajole, to manage um on a on a day to day and a week to week basis. Yeah, and but and we then benefit also clearly if, if you know the partners that we're working with, they are experts in the field, they're specialists, they've they've got that you know, decades of experience of doing that one particular thing and that, that comes with it the the benefit of network themselves. Yes. So they get the, yes. the, the best and the most effective deals from a supplier's perspective. They've got the existing relationships with um all of these different aspects of the business that help the business to that help the business's operational performance, we are able to leverage the, their experience and their networks to ensure that we're getting the best result from that perspective as well, which is which is a real positive. Yeah, it's a powerful combination, isn't it? And as I say, for for thirty years, I've I've, I've found it to work work pretty well. If you know, the fundamental objective here is to generate real returns, and so far this this strategy hasn't hasn't proved a, an incorrect one in in, in thirty years and. As we've heard, that the significant diversification that we now that we now offer is 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 partly down to, as you say, the experience and those connections uh, with all these different parties. You know, ultimately ends up adding adding huge amounts of value for 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 investors. Good, got it. I mean, that's very powerful indeed. Just wanted to touch on something I know that's that's kind of close to your heart on a on a on a day to day basis and just shedding some more light on kind of the the process. We've touched on, you know, what does diversification mean? We've talked about the sectors, how you can generate return, the tangible nature of the businesses, but you know, ultimately you start somewhere with we've had a meeting, somebody's got an idea. How how does it evolve from there before we before we get to deploying capital? So the, the, the investment process can be broken down. So the investment process throughout an asset's life cycle, if you like, so this is re- this is the, the case for all of the assets across all the sectors that we operate in, um, it can be broken down into four key stages. The first stage is our due diligence stage, so that will start with someone's had an idea, <laughs> someone's seen a proposal, um, or something has come across the desk to interrogate and to have a look at. Um, we will then do our own internal due diligence on that opportunity um, that comes with it you know a multitude of, uh, of things that can be to that will always be from our perspective because we're dealing with tangible assets going and visiting the site um, seeing the opportunity um, interrogating obviously the financials and any supporting information that you've got on that deal 
um, independently verifying any of the information that you've got, so whether that be by way of evaluation or a cost report or any sort of independent uh, or any any information that you've got. So we've got to a point where ultimately, typically between you know, three six months, we've got to a point where we feel we're able to present this deal to our investment committee for provisional approval. Um, which then flows through to the second phase, which is the acquisition phase, and it's at this point subject to investment committee approval that we will bolster that due diligence that we've already done, um, employing all of the necessary third-party professionals, so legal team, tax team, finance team, um, who will effectively that process is to ratify the DD that we've already done to make sure that when we come to acquiring the business, we are acquiring uh, a business with good and proper title and, and all the other things that we need to ensure that we are doing from an acquisition perspective. Um, so there's a, a huge amount of process that, that, that goes into that. And that again, that can take anywhere between, it's, it's very hard to pin down an actual timeline because there's so, there can often be so much fluctuation dependent on the deal itself. Um, but you know, that, that is never a quick and short process. Um, that flows through to the next part of the process, if you like, which is the active management, which we touched on quite extensively. That's when we actually get in there, roll our sleeves up and seek to execute the plan that we've put in place during the DD and the acquisition stage. Um, and then the final stage is on the uh, disposal. So we, that we enter into a disposal phase. And again, um, that comes with it, all of the legal and professional support that we need from third party professionals to make sure that we're doing things in a way that protects investors so that we're selling things with um, the documentation that we've got in place and the contracts that we're signing are robust and that there's no uh, risk from our perspective of, of, of anything coming out of the woodwork at a later stage so it's just making sure each of those different stages are managed robustly um, and they can vary in terms of complexity and, and, and difficulty depending on what, what it is that we're buying managing and selling Good. And I suppose, again, one of the overarching principles is that, you know, where we talked at the beginning about looking to buy off market and looking to buy uh, in a position of strength and where we see opportunity, I suppose the converse applies at a, at a time of disposal, isn't it? Insofar as, you know, we will always be looking to put those properties onto the market at that time so that we can be confident that we have achieved best price for investors as a result of um, all the activities that we've kind of touched on today, the active management and the adding value, we can actually say, well, this has been proven by you know, a, a third party taking it to market, having a third party's you know, potential buyers review the, 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 the documentation that you describe and then putting an offer in, and that is a real testament to validating the, the exit price as opposed to you know, either not selling it or, or, or selling it privately. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that, that can often be, we're in getting these assets independently valued on a, on a regular basis. Um, that often sparks a thought of, okay, this independent valuation is significantly above, for instance, what we expected it to be at this point in the life cycle. Is it worth testing the market? Um, if we do think it is, and we think it is, that, that opportunity is there to crystallise, um, whether it be earlier or, or on time with our existing um, strategy, then at that point we will seek to place them on the market and hopefully benefit from that competitive tension um, and get the best result for investors. Yeah, agreed, agreed. So it's 
kind of buy off market, sell on market, and um, you know that's a very defensible and very coherent uh, strategy to subscribe to. Good. Is there anything, David, you want to kind of bring to life in this podcast? And obviously, we've bought and sold a lot of lot of assets over the years. But are there any any highlights you want to sort of showcase as as, as going into a bit more detail of, of of what's actually happened on a day to day basis, which have led to you know positive outcomes for investors? Sure. Yep. Yeah. So we've got, we've as you say we've um, we've bought and sold many things. Uh, <laughs> Which goes goes without saying, but just for an example, um, in terms of what we've, we've sought to do in the past, from a sale perspective, um, we, or from a hotel perspective, if you like, we've we've purchased assets um, recently, probably 2020. Uh, we sold an asset in Troon in Scotland. Uh, we'd purchased that asset. It was. An asset that we that one of its key features were its location. It's located next door to the Royal Troon Golf Course. For any any golf listeners, golf fans uh, that are listening, um, so yeah, so that that had a lot of potential based on its location. It hadn't been managed, um, to, in our view, it had opportunities to be managed more efficiently. It also hadn't been as looked after as um, it possibly should have been. So there was opportunity there to improve it the standard of that hotel, both from a service perspective and from an aesthetic perspective. Um, so part of our active management there was to refurbish the hotel um, to improve the management team within the business, and we held that. Um, we we sought to do that straight away. Um, we managed to sell that asset in the midst of a pandemic, which was an interesting, <laughs> an interesting one for, for the hotel industry, but we, in doing so, crystallize a very very strong uh, return for investors it was above above considerably above um, the target for the the service in which it sat at, sat in so um, that was a, a really positive story there's a couple um, that spring to mind just because they're at the forefront at the minute um, because they're you know part of the the day-to-day at the moment so we've purchased uh, a care home again fantastic timing to purchase a care home in the back end of 2019. Obviously, no one knew that a pandemic was around the corner that was going to um, cause significant difficulties for that for that industry. But we purchased that in 2019. The plan there was to refurbish the asset, improve the management team, um, and we expected to hold that for between three and five years. Clearly, we had to be adaptive to the fact that in the height of the pandemic, um, the care home industry was hit pretty hard there were no no new admissions allowed for a, for a long period of time no visitation um so we effectively had to shift um or pivot from what our initial plan was to managing a crisis effectively uh which we've done or which we did thankfully very well we managed to thankfully avoid any uh serious outbreaks or or, or casualties in that respect and it's now really positive to see that particular asset back on track so we've managed to now finalize the refurbishment that was initially intended we've got a fully refurbished home um the performance trading performance there has improved significantly in terms of where it was all of the um external validation in terms of reviews and and commentary from local authority and and cqc a a testament to that improvement Um, and it's clear that the residents there are receiving a much that one, one, they're in a much better environment and two, they're receiving a much higher quality of care and service, which 
has a real impact on a number of families on the community itself. So that's a real positive story uh, for us to be able to not just execute a business plan, if you like, but to actually see the real positive impacts that it has on so so many people in doing so. So that, that's one that springs to mind just because that is um, one of our active projects at the moment. Um, but yeah, there's 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 countless stories. So um, good. Thanks, David. I mean, as you say, we could we could probably spend a considerable amount of time going into you know huge huge amounts of detail. But the session today, you know, was designed to cover those those high level stories to give to give listeners the opportunity to understand what we mean by uh, real assets, what diversification means, how we work to you know achieve our three three guiding principles, and what that means to investors how we work with the with the specialist partners and just giving a flavor of of you know the buttons that that one can pr- that, that one can push in 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 these different businesses because there are many so hopefully there's a there's a summary there in in, in today's session so all that remains for me to do is to thank you david for for joining me today uh, an enlightening conversation thank you and to to everybody on the podcast thank you for listening today don't forget to rate and review us and follow us on your normal podcast uh, platform. And as ever, please um, do not hesitate to get in touch with any feedback. We welcome it, both uh, positive and less than positive, and improvements that we can make, or indeed any ideas and any topics you want to see us cover in any future episodes. Thanks again, and see you next time.